episode 204 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 21st of November 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Ahoy, hoy. Will. Hello. And Alan. Good day. Alan, who are you? Are you Popey by any chance? That's me. I'm unemployed and in your face. (laughs) (laughs) But hopefully not for long. Yes. Yeah, Graham's off riding his bike or something and getting rained on. Uh, I don't know. He's, he's not around anyway. Hopefully he'll be around next week. He could be impaled on a tree. We don't know. We don't know, actually. <laughs> we haven't heard from him, have we? Shit. <laughs> but anyway, let's get on with a bit of news then. The first one is that Arduino announces official MicroPython support, something you are quite excited about, Will, I understand. I am quite excited about it. Originally, Arduino was intended for um, people to be able to use a platform that weren't engineers. Um, And so they made the curious decision to base it on C and C++. And it's been that way since about 2005. So that's like 17 years they have resolutely refused to move away from C, C++. Um, And now they've announced that they are going to add Python as a sort of officially, well, not as a sort of, but as an officially supported language which is very exciting. It's going to be based on MicroPython, which started as a Kickstarter in 2014, raised about 100 grand and now exists as in its own right with um, a company behind it, developing it, selling hardware that runs on it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just a, a very nice compiled Python that will run on microcontrollers. And the really cool thing for me is that it also provides a REPL, which is like an interactive um, command line that you can get onto the device. So in the days of old on Arduino, you would write your C++ code, you would compile it, you would flash it onto the device, you would try it out and it wouldn't work, so you'd go and fix it and then you'd flash it onto the device and then you'd try it and so on. And it was quite slow and laborious. This will let you open up like a shell effectively onto the microcontroller, try your code out live, and if it all works, then you can put it into a Python file, upload that, and you're away. So I'm quite excited by this. I think that this will bring Arduino to lots more people, and it's just going to be a lot easier to use. It's really cool. Will it work on any bog-standard Arduino that I have in my drawer, or do I have to buy special ones? You have to have a special one. There are three currently supported ones, and they're all ARM-based. So your, like, at Mega 328 or whatever it is won't work. But if you've got uh, a Nano BLE, which is uh, an ARM Cortex M4 core and uh, a bit of Bluetooth, or a Raspberry Pi 2040 Connect, which is a Raspberry Pi Pico, but in Arduino form, or an Arduino Portenta H7, which is, again, an ARM Cortex core in it, then it will work. So you need to be targeting arm, small ARM devices rather than the old AppMega stuff. But I think everything's generally going that way anyway. I think the one thing they missed the trick with is if they included that virtual machine that runs the MicroPython on the boards in the actual development tool itself. That way you could kind of pre-develop the stuff before you got to the hardware. But I guess the hardware is quite cheap, so it's not that terrible. Yeah, it's quite cheap, but also, yeah, if you can develop Python on your desktop, then the interaction with the hardware bits, like the the turning the LEDs on and off and that sort of thing, maybe that you need real hardware to test or an emulator to test it on. But everything else you can pretty much run on your command line. 
All right, Fedora 37 has been released. Now, we don't normally talk about Fedora because none of us use it, and uh, we don't really have much to add. But, uh, Popey, you installed this today and checked it out. That's right. I had a bit of time on my hands today. So (laughs) I uh, downloaded the ISO and uh, booted it on my ThinkPad T450, which has got 32 gigs of RAM, 240 gig SSD, i7 CPU. So it's, it's not rubbish. I found the installer is just as frustrating as it always is. Not a lot to mention there, but I did get it all installed. It was a little bit frustrating getting software because I was using the GNOME version of Fedora. And the first thing I did was I thought, well, let me get all the software that I normally put on a Linux machine. And I've got this little list of like desktop stuff that I always put on everything. And so I thought, well, I'll launch GNOME software. That'll be the first thing to do. And it opened and then it had a thing saying building software catalog or something in a little bar and it took 15 minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was a couple of pop-ups that came up that said two applications updated and then a couple more. And in the background, there was this constant RPM OS tree and GNOME software eating the CPU. But yeah, it was a, I timed it and it was 15 minutes before Jesus. it finally drew the screen that lets you search for software. Ooh. And I searched and, uh, none of the applications that I wanted were available. <laughs> so that, that was kind of annoying. Was that all proprietary bullshit though? Like Slack and whatnot? Some of it. Yeah. Standard notes, my note taking app, uh, Spotify, Kitty, which is an open source terminal, Slack. Microsoft Edge browser and Discord. And there was not many apps on the front page of GNOME Software. And I thought, well, maybe I need to go into one of the categories. So I went into the work category and there's an editor's pick. <laughs> the only editor's pick was Discs, the disk management <laughs> oh, wow. utility for GNOME, which is something everyone needs in their workplace. Now, yeah, okay, I'm taking the piss a bit, but it, it just felt like, yeah, okay, there's a whole plethora of GNOME software in there, but nothing I actually wanted. And I had a rummage around in the burger menu and I found a software repositories section. And I, I thought maybe there's a flat hub bit in here that I need to turn on and I couldn't find anything. Everything seemed turned on already except one that said Fedora flat packs brackets testing. And I don't think I really want testing stuff. And I didn't think that would be flat hub because it would say flat hub if it was. So I had to go Googling. And I found some documentation that told me I had to go to FlatHub and download a file and then click on the file in order to enable FlatHub. It isn't yet a button you can just press. And I get why, because you know, they're freedom-loving people, so they don't want it to be easy to install software that people actually want to use. But I hear that that is coming. So on the good side, once I did download that file and GNOME Software came back, it had all the software that I expected. So Spotify, Standard Notes, Slack, Edge, Discord, VS Code, and Zoom, all there, all easy to install. And I could do them in parallel. I could click on one to install it, go back, click on the next one and back. And so I ended up with a usable workstation. And I quite liked the gestures that you could do with the touchpad, even though I normally turn off the touchpad on a laptop and just use the, the nipple. That was quite nice. And I noticed that on Wayland, it's much smoother than it was on X11. There was a little bit of visual corruption, but other than that, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty good. And importantly, I was using Fedora Silverblue, not the stock Fedora. Ah. Yeah. I thought I'd give that a go. Right, because I tried to install Workstation, and uh, this was on a machine that's already got Arch and Zubuntu on it. And uh, it just wouldn't show up and grub, just no matter what I did. 
I could only boot into Ubuntu and uh, Arch. So I tried doing uh, update grub, that didn't work. Tried booting into a live session and doing boot repair, that didn't work. And so I gave up. So I have no idea whether 37 is any good or not. Sorry, Fedora. Well, I was pleasantly surprised. After you were initially disappointed. Well, yeah, <laughs> the install process was a little bit annoying, but one, I mean, it only took me a little while to get everything installed and it didn't, it only took me one Google search to find it. There were a few messages here and there that indicated that I might have problems with some of the software due to confinement, which, you know, I kind of expect having come from the snap world, but I think it's probably a perfectly usable gnome desktop. Um, it's all the same software that I use just on a you know, newer desktop. It's pretty good. Open printing keeps old printers working, even on Windows. So I put this in to troll you, Phelim, as usual. Thanks. <laughs> so there's a load of printers that don't really work on Windows 11 anymore for various reasons of drivers not being supported and stuff, but they are supported on Linux. And using the magic of Snaps and WSL, you can make old printers work on Windows. Hooray. I love printers. <laughs> Almost as much as WSL. Well, I actually wanted to try these snaps out. This, this is Till, your old uh, colleague, Will and uh, Alan, uh, who did a presentation at the Ubuntu Summit recently about this. And so I installed these snaps on a laptop, and printing actually worked on Linux with my shitty old HP printer. I couldn't believe it. With a printer that didn't previously work? Yes. Huh. Wow. However, then I thought, right, I'll plug it into my TV box that's actually near the printer. And I was just about to install the snaps and everything. And then it just popped up, right, configuring printer, right, printer's working. I was like, no, surely not. Control P, and it fucking worked. So whatever Canonical have been doing with regards to printing, thumbs up from me because it just works now. So I no longer need my really, really old Mac to print. I'm always happy when I see mention of Till's work online, especially on places like the register where they can be a bit snarky about stuff, uh, because this is helping real people with real problems. Because, you know, people just junk printers and it leads to e-waste and they just go out and buy a new printer when one stops working or, you know, they upgrade their operating system and there's no driver. They'll just junk the printer, but he keeps stuff working and that's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. And he's been running open printing, not alone, but there's a very small number of people that work on it. And he has been there from, from the very beginning. Uh, and he also runs Google Summer of Code and gets people in and teaches them how to do it. And they contribute loads of code. It's just a really great example of somebody who's got a lot of determination to keep an open source project alive and relevant and moving forward. So well done, Till. Yeah, and it's not an exciting one, is it? It's printing. No one likes printing, but it's something that a lot of us have to do. It has to be right up there. The same people keep time zone databases up to date for TZ data and stuff. Uh, yeah, horrible Trojan work that nobody really wants to do. Yeah, and if it means that uh, Linux can make Windows better, then uh, that's a win <laughs> for me. I thought it was going to be funny where you had to boot your Windows laptop to run WSL to print to Linux. That would have been even more funny, but oh well. It would have been. But the whole point of it is that now Snaps can run on WSL because WSL got System D, and so it makes it all possible. WSL really is our Trojan horse on Windows, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Oh, don't tell Fairly, man. He doesn't agree. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. 
From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. It's a shame Graham's not here. Otherwise, we could tell him to take the piss out of his friend Mike Saunders at the Document Foundation. He put up a blog post recently, LibreOffice and blockchain, what cool things are possible? <laughs> and then asked the question in a you know roundabout way, oh, it's this potential great thing. And then all the comments were like, no, don't, fuck you, please, no, please don't put it. And then, then he was like, um, update. Based on the majority of feedback, we will not continue the discussion or explore this topic <laughs> any further, as it is rather clear the LibreOffice community is not interested. Thanks to everyone who let us know what they think. Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know why they asked the question in the first place on what they expected. I bet somebody just said, we need to be in on that. <laughs> Maybe, but you'd think that the Document Foundation would be uh, a bit more clued into these things. But it is good that they listened at the same time, I suppose. Well, so are they on your shit list or not? That's the question. Well, no, because they didn't mention NFTs, so there's that. That's good. And they only asked the question. And they got a very <laughs> firm answer. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's not quite the same as that, is it? But, um, you know, they, they floated the idea and it was roundly shut down by the community, which is good. I mean, the, the tide has turned on this stuff, hasn't it? It's the bottom line. There was a time when there would have been a debate, whereas now there just is no fucking debate at all. Blockchain is bullshit. There's nothing that you can do with the blockchain that you can't do better with existing technology. I don't know. Can you waste that much money and natural <laughs> resources that quickly? <laughs> the hell? So I don't think you can. Oh, Formula One, maybe. To know the Formula One track, I have to be in the middle of an oil field and then set it on fire. I think you could uh, build like five or six stadiums in a, a tiny country that can't host the World Cup in the summer because it's too fucking hot. Interesting. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> I have some Swiss <laughs> businessmen who may pay a lot of money for this. <laughs> well, come on, England, is all I can say to that. Boo. You're just jealous because you didn't qualify. Protests didn't qualify, that's it, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's do some feedback then. William got in touch. How do companies like Unraid and Proxmox get away with charging money and running on top of Linux and BSD base? Probably a simple, silly question, but I'm just wondering... I run three Unraid servers with paid licenses, love the software, but was wondering. Well, that's part of open source software. You get to reuse it. It's usually the trademarks that you're not allowed to use. So say you wanted to have some sort of distribution that was based on Ubuntu. As long as you don't call it Ubuntu, that's fine because it is open source and the license lets you do it. And there's nothing stopping you charging people for it as long as you make the source code available. I think the answer is in his question, really, because he says, 
how do they get away with, which is a bad choice of words, but it says get away with charging money for running on top of Linux and BSD base. You're paying for the thing on top of Linux. You're not really paying for Linux and BSD. You're paying for engineering work to make their stuff work on Linux and BSD. Also, Unraid, Jesus. Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Alan and Jim exploded. Why aren't you using ZFS? Come on. Oh, fun fact, Fedora 37 installs with ButterFS by default. Which is fine for a single disk, but uh, just don't try running it on servers with RAID. And don't oh, at me, I don't care. You've drunk the Kool-Aid, you've drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah, I'm, I'm converted into the Church of ZFS, what can I say? It's brilliant. All right, Admin X wrote to us. Good evening, gents. The state of remastering an Ubuntu installation is complete shit, and I would appreciate some feedback on what is being used to create a working ISO in 2022. RemasterSys was the gold standard quite some years back. I've tried some alternatives, but none work as advertised. Not too surprising if you ask me. Is there a built-in utility that I may be missing? It's always been relatively closely guarded how people make proper official ISOs for some reason. There have been documents around that show how Ubuntu and the flavors build their ISOs, but it's never really been shouted from the rooftops. So it's been up to third parties like Remaster Sys and there was one called Ping Guy who made one as well that was uh, relatively good. So it's really just up to other people to create tools to do this there is actually an official tool it's called live build and live build is used to make some of the debian images and ubuntu and some others it is possible to just use live build and elementary have a project that lets you build the elementary iso but you could remix that and use it to build any derivative of ubuntu into something so that there are tools out there but I guess part of it is what's the motivation? Like, what's the need? Why Why do people need to keep creating these tools to remaster Ubuntu when there's plenty of distros out there already? Well, presumably, if you just want to make your own personal ISO of it that's got everything installed and working out of the box. Yeah, and it would be nice to improve the documentation if you want to be able to do that. And as I understand it, there were some conversations, um, Martin mentioned there were some conversations at the Ubuntu summit recently where they might work on improving that that state so keep an eye out or nag martin and find out where it is how did you make ubuntu martin and because fun fact you made the first ubuntu Mate or the the first iso that would turn into ubuntu Mate. yeah it was called matey (laughs) (laughs) named after the bubble bath i found the email the other day uh, matey.iso that i sent to martin um Crikey, I think I did something crazy like unpack the ISO, monkey around with it, and then repack it again, uh, just manually. I don't think I used any tools. I didn't. I certainly didn't use RemasterSys or anything like that. Fair enough. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an ad-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And do check out Linux After Dark and Linux Downtime. We had a particularly interesting Linux Downtime recently where Martin talked about yet another desktop environment, this time written in Flutter and Dart and stuff. He's got too much free time in his hands, that lad. Seemingly so. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. 
It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. So, Puppy, you've been running Ubuntu.social, which is your own personal Mastodon instance. I think you did run it once before and then gave up on it and have recently, uh, for obvious reasons, rebooted it. So I wanted to talk to you about the actual process of installing and running your own Mastodon instance, something that I would imagine a fair few people are interested in. So uh, how did you install it, just with Docker? I've tried both ways, Docker and non-Docker. When it, when we first talked about it in the Ubuntu podcast, uh, Telegram channel, someone said, Oh, we should have our own Mastodon server. And this was a few years ago and nobody bit on that. And that was back in 2018. And then 2019, someone else mentioned it and I happened to be in the pub at the time. And so I was like, yeah, okay. And I registered the domain ubuntu.social. And when I got home, I started reading the documentation on how to install it and I, I think I used a Linode box or something and I made it relatively open. So basically anyone could have an account on it and it worked, but it was a bit of a headache because the box didn't have a huge amount of disk space and it would constantly run out because it's constantly caching other people's images like profile pictures and images that people post and thumbnails of videos and the actual videos themselves and so on. And I got kind of frustrated with it, so I rage quit and shut it down. That never happens with Mastodon instances, does it? <laughs> yeah. And then more recently, I dug it out again, and I thought, I wonder how I can set this up. So I had a, a server in the office, and I thought, oh, I'll install it on that. It's a HP micro server, one of the old N40s. So it's really old, really crusty, two cores, eight gig of RAM, 500 gig disk space. It's nothing special. I think it's got like a 1.4 gigahertz CPU or something really slow and crusty. And I got it installed without Docker this time because I'm not a super fan of Docker. So I, I set it up and yeah, I got it set up and running perfectly fine. But the problem is it's behind a NAT firewall, so you can't get to it. So I spun up a Linode box and set up Nginx as a front end reverse proxy and then via a dodgy ssh tunnel <laughs> from oh, Jesus. my office to the linode box which port forwards port 80 and port 443 you hit the linode box and it just transparently sends your requests down an ssh tunnel to my box in the office where mastodon's running and it's running okay could you not use the wire guard tunnel? <laughs> oh, there are a huge list of things I could have done, but I didn't. I used an SSH tunnel because it's a one-line command. I didn't have to install anything or do anything other than That's type fair. SSH minus R, you know, 80, and then the host name and stuff. How many users is on it? One. Me. Oh, well, then that's fine. You can complain to yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
And so it was pretty straightforward to install. There's been a couple of updates. Um, I installed 3.5.3, which was the stable release at the time. And since then, 4.0, 4.01 and 4.02 have come out. And I've up- gone through the upgrade notes. And to be fair, the upgrade notes have been reliable. And I've clearly done three of those upgrades and they've worked. One major upgrade from three to four and then two minor upgrades to for bug fixes or whatever. But yeah, it seems to be running okay. It's pushing at the boundaries of what that box is capable of because I can't even install Elasticsearch on it because it just runs out of RAM. And so you can't actually search for tweets. You know, I, I, I can I can view the timeline and I can view other people's uh, tweets and I can click on them and do all the usual stuff like favorite and message people and all that. But I just can't search because I haven't got that module enabled. Maybe I could split this across two hosts or put it on a bigger box or something. I don't know. Or even just put it on one of your ThinkPads. It would probably be better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thinking about it, uh, my T450 is actually better in every measurable way than the HP microserver. It's not loud. It has no disk redundancy, although it could do. It's not a terrible idea. No, it's a terrible idea, Joe. But it's <laughs> yeah. um, it's probably better than my idea of running it on an uh, ancient HP microserver at the end of an SSH tunnel. Are you not worried about um, moderation issues? Or, well, content, you know, just illegal shit ending up on your server, basically. That is the big thing I am constantly worried about with Mastodon, actually. Sometimes when I see how much disk space is being used... You know, you've got to remember, this is my box that I'm using, and it's, you know, hosted on in a location that's under my control. And sometimes I, you know, go looking in the media directory to see what's eating up all the disk space. And there's humongous video files that people are uploading of them just like standing in the street having a party or something. I've got no idea who these people are or what, you know, where this is. But this is, you know, content that's been uploaded, and it could be anything. It really could be anything. And yeah, that does worry me a little bit. And so I'm a bit twitchy. You don't really know where that comes from. Like, is that like the global feed where that's coming from? Or it can be from the, the federated timeline because I sometimes right. look at the federated timeline. And so obviously, if I'm looking at it in my web browser, yeah. then my server must have a copy of it in order to show it to me. Yeah, I still, I'm a bit iffy on local and who I follow and worldwide one or whatever the hell it's called. I'm very dubious with the the terms but yeah yeah i clicked on that once and it just it's like a fire hose going past yes amusingly on mine it didn't work for a while the federated timeline didn't work in fact none of it dynamically updated and i was having to refresh the the page and it's because i missed out one part which was there's a web socket from your client your browser connecting to mastodon in order to get that stream of the fire hose of updates so that it dynamically updates the page right and that was another port that i hadn't forwarded via ssh and so i had to tweak my nginx config and add an additional port to forward the WebSocket, and then suddenly the fire hose started and i was like oh right i fixed that then or it was a feature by you disabling it to save on hard drive space <laughs> it, could be. it is certainly racking up disk space Within a week, it was up to like 50 gig um, of, of space. And it chews a lot of, um, a lot of data as well. I think so. I keep a track of how much data is being used on the box and it's around about two megabits a second constantly. Mm, wow. It never drops. It's constantly talking to other Mastodon servers. So if you're thinking, I don't want to be on one of these redneck uh, Mastodon servers. I want to run my own one. 
it's going to eat quite a bit of disk space. It needs quite a bit of CPU. I'd probably use 16 gig of RAM, probably four cores, and be aware that it's going to eat a fair amount of uh, bandwidth as well. Not to try and say how brilliant I am, but I have I have an account on Fostodon, and it sent me a message saying, oh, you could help out by paying, I think it was 150 a month or something ridiculously cheap like that, which I did. And I think if you do find your particular Mastodon server to be nice and they have a system like this, Patreon or whatever, I think you should consider it because, you know, you have a system there that isn't making you the product. You should try and support it if you can and help them out, especially if the bloody hardware is getting eaten away like that every time. Yeah. It does have um, utilities that you can use to clean up. So it'll go and find orphaned media. So for example, if someone posts a video and then they delete the toot, or whatever they call it, if they delete the pub the the published item, the fart I like to call it. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to go around all of the Mastodon servers and clear out all of them. But if you run this job on a regular basis, it will clear out those orphaned cached items, and so you can kind of keep your head above water and push down. You know the the amount of data. When I booted it up this time, this instance, when I installed it, I did think. You know, maybe someone would pay $8 a year for this, you know, as opposed to the $8 a month for a blue tick. And I thought that would be reasonable for a bunch of users and they'd probably pay for the hosting of it. But I've actually been in contact with someone from Canonical because, you know, the domain name is ubuntu.social. And originally it was set up for Ubuntu members. And I've been chatting to someone at Canonical about maybe them taking the domain and maybe just them hosting one just for Ubuntu members, which makes more sense rather than me trying to run it on a cruddy old server yeah let mark pay for it yes that's a great idea <laughs> what you want is a billionaire in charge of it <laughs> what could go wrong <laughs> yes we should have a south african billionaire <laughs> <laughs> right well we'd better get out of here then thank you very much for joining us alan it's been a pleasure to have you you're welcome we'll be back next week with Graham, hopefully, if he isn't impaled on a tree we're going to feel really bad if he is <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah uh, when we'll have some discoveries and, and uh, whatnot. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Will. And I've been Alan. See you later. Bye.